Welcome to another UCLH COVID-19 update. Today we are in conversation with infectious diseases consultant Mike Brown. So COVID as a disease can obviously present in some people completely asymptomatically right up to being, you know, in intensive care. What does a typical patient's treatment who might actually need to come into a hospital look like? Yes. So, you know, like every viral infection, there's a range from mm. having the mildest of symptoms where you wouldn't even think about telling your family about it, let alone telling your doctor about it, to the really severe illness where people end up on intensive care. And coronavirus has been like that almost in spades with a whole range of that. We've learned from collecting data on tens of thousands of people around the UK how people in hospital are presenting. And the more patients we recruit into those studies to collect that data, the more we have a good sense of it. And what we're learning from that is what we're recognising as we see patients in the front door. There's a group of people who are coming in with the typical respiratory symptoms of a viral infection, fever, cough, runny nose, sore throat, breathing problems. And as I said, within any viral infection, that could be so mild that you don't go to hospital to the much more extreme where you end up needing oxygen. There's a group of people who are coming in with the more influenza-like symptoms of fever and achy muscles. And again, they can get really, really sick with lots of inflammation and end up on intensive care, but often they're milder than that. And then there's a group of people who are coming in with more of an abdominal pain diarrhea type presentation which we see with some other viruses and obviously we see with other conditions like appendicitis. That's the sort of range of the common presentations, but we also see quite unusual things like we're seeing an increased number of people having strokes, people having some kinds of encephalitis and other brain infections, various other unusual presentations like that as well. That must be very difficult to assess, to know who to suspect rather than just suspecting any patient coming in. Yeah, and that's right, because obviously we don't want to miss it. Yeah. Even if we don't have any specific treatment, say, and I can come on to that in a minute, we don't want to miss it because we don't want to expose other people to it. So one of the jobs of the physicians and the nurses at the front door and, and we in infection have been helping with that from as soon as the patient come in is work out who fulfills that case definition that means we better make sure this person does not have coronavirus before we let them continue their patient journey. And so that case definition, which is things like, do you have fever and any of the following symptoms, sore throat, uh, cough, cold, changes on your chest x-ray, etc. That's designed to be quite a broad case definition so that you don't miss it. But a lot of those people don't have it. And it's a case of trying to work out how strongly do I think this person mm. has it? And how do I think, well, I better make sure they haven't got it, but I must, must make sure I don't miss their pneumonia that needs treatment or their appendicitis, etc. So one of those things is having that catch-all thing at the beginning to triage. And one of the reasons that's needed is because until recently, it would take 24 hours for us to get the result of the swab. And you have to work out where to put that patient mm especially when you've got a limited number of side rooms, and you'll probably hear later from infection control about that. But trying to say, can I tell when someone comes in the front of the hospital whether they've got it or not? 
because I need to work out where I'm going to put them. And we got quite good at that because by reading the science that was already coming out of China and by looking at patients and their x-rays and talking to radiology colleagues and measuring things and seeing what happened, we got pretty good when there was a lot of coronavirus around and saying, I think that person's probably got it because their lymphocyte count is low and their neutrophil count isn't high and they seem to have changes on both sides of their lungs rather than just a pneumonia and I can't find other alternative diagnosis. I think that's probably going to be coronavirus. I'm happy to put them somewhere with other coronavirus patients mm. and actually then the result will come back and show we were right. In the people we thought, I actually think it could well be something else but we better be sure. In about half those people, actually, it did turn out to be coronavirus. So you have to make sure you have a catch-all thing and then use all your skin clinical skills and a few extra tests to try and help. Now we've got that rapid test, which means that hopefully within an hour of someone coming the front door, you will have an answer one way or the other. The challenges, as you may have heard, is the other thing that we've learned about this is we came into it rather naively thinking that this is a viral infection, it's the virus that's doing everything, the virus is what we need to focus on and look for and treat, and then that's it. But it quite rapidly became the case that people seem to have the typical initial viral symptoms of all the fevers, that would then go away, and then well into two or three weeks after that, suddenly they'd get really unwell with breathing problems. And when you try to find the virus in those people from throat swabs or other samples, you can't find it anymore. And unfortunately, some people have died, but it's been possible to do post-mortems and actually look at what's going on in the lungs. And it's very difficult to actually find any virus there at all. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned, partly from working with all these other colleagues in other specialties, whether they're rheumatologists or hematologists or uh, thrombosis specialists and intensive care doctors and kidney doctors, is that really what's happening at that stage is not about the virus itself. It's this inflammation that's happening that's generating all these other complications so it's kind of a two-phase thing where initially it's about the virus but then the virus is probably gone and it's lit this touch paper and now it's just lots and lots of inflammation and the way then possibly to focus on managing that is how do we deal with those issues with dealing with the inflammation while we support people with their breathing rather than just focusing on the virus itself. And is that inflammatory picture present in the majority of patients who will go on to die of the disease or, or suffer with it? To various extents, so there are different patterns and different amounts of inflammation. Again, we'll continue to learn this from being really careful about collecting information on everybody properly to really understand that properly. There are various amounts of inflammation. For some people, it's just a virus in the lung, a bit of local inflammation, that's enough to make them sick. And other people, it seems to be affecting a whole wide system of their body, causing profound shock and all sorts of other problems, inflammation of the heart, etc. From what we've learnt already, has that given us more indication of what different types of treatment we should use? What do we use currently to treat? Yeah, so uh, we, we don't have any proven treatments for coronavirus at the moment. And we're going through a series of steps one step is to say what viral antiviral drugs have been de developed for other conditions, whether it's HIV, whether it's Ebola, uh, whether it's various other viral infections, what drugs that have been developed for that work in the test tube against this coronavirus and therefore might work in people. And we've been doing, continue to do trials here of giving those drugs 
some of them are all over the UK. There's trial, same trial happening in every hospital in the UK. Some of them are in all different parts of the world. Finding patients where we found that they've got the coronavirus, giving them this treatment or another treatment and trying to see what happens. The early indication at the moment is that, much like I've said that when people are really sick, the virus actually isn't there that much anymore. Some of the early indications are suggesting that treating with viruses may not help in those people. Mm. By the time they're sick and in hospital, there may not be a huge benefit of trying to attack the virus. But we won't know that until all of those trials have been properly published and we maybe identify certain groups in whom it does benefit. By the same token, because we recognise there's so much inflammation going on, there's another whole range of trials using drugs that have been used in rheumatoid arthritis in uh, cytokine release storm for CAR T-cell therapy and all of those things where it's about attacking the inflammatory response. Drugs like tocilizumab and anakinra and ruxolitinib, etc. There are trials of that going on at UCH and elsewhere to see whether switching off the inflammation is effective or not. And then there's the question for which people hope to get on and do the trials on, but they haven't really started yet, is we're recognising a lot of thrombosis in these patients. And whether that's secondary to what's really going on deep in the blood vessels or whether it's actually what's causing trouble, we don't know. But people are keen to do some trials to see whether very thorough and intense anticoagulation will also improve outcomes. I suppose there's, there's so much you're learning quite rapidly and it's getting all of that information together to the next steps to happen is very difficult. Yes, and it's, a, it's an interesting situation at the moment because it takes time to get all of those trials up and yeah. running. And as we've just got them up and running, the first wave has gone. Yeah. So we've now got lots of trials and very few patients. And it's great that there are a few patients, but it means the worry is as we go, if we go into a second wave, we still won't know how to treat people because we haven't had enough information from the first wave from those trials to really help us. These trials are being done in so many different areas that hopefully we will have that information, but it is a challenge at the moment. It would be such a shame to get into another wave and still not have mm -hmm. learned what treatments are effective and what treatments are people giving that they think might work, but actually don't work and might cause harm. And yeah. we've all had heard the debate in the news about uh, Trump telling everybody to use chloroquine and maybe it's actually harmful rather than beneficial. Has it been a lot easier to get trials that would normally take a lot longer up and running because there's just been this global effort from everybody for it to work? Absolutely. So it can take 18 months, two years to go from design, even longer to go from thinking about a trial you want to do to actually being able to do it. And here in uh, COVID, that has been turned around in four to six weeks, which is fantastic mm. in terms of seeing how you can pull people together to do those things properly. Four to six weeks are still, as I said, proved a little bit long yeah. in terms of getting patients into trials at the moment because the first wave in London has come to an end. Is there anything we've learnt if there was another surge of things that we'd do immediately different? There are some things I, we, I, we have learnt. I think we're learning, particularly at UCH, we're learning that the strategy involving using non-invasive ventilation with the CPAP seems to be effective and stop mm. people needing to go through to intubation and ventilation. Uh, that still needs to be subjected to the, the normal process of uh, scientific rigor, but that seems to be, that strategy seems to be an effective one. Uh, we're learning how to deliver 
the infection prevention things effectively. We're learning how to deploy our teams and retrain people to do things they're not used to be doing and what's easy for them to do and what's challenging for them to do. Uh, we're learning which tests maybe are useful to tell us what we should do differently and what we shouldn't. And we're starting to learn some extra things about unusual presentations. I think it'll be the things that would be really interesting to learn is how much of all of this PPE we really need to be wearing because we've all seen how it's, it's uncomfortable to wear, there are issues around supply, it gets in the way of family being able to have contact with them, etc. And it would be really interesting if we could get to the point where we discover that actually by the time people are sick in hospital, there's so little live virus around that we don't need to do that and that stuff doesn't obstruct care. And the sort of things that need to be done to understand that is for people in the laboratory to see how hard or difficult it is to actually culture a virus in people by the time they're into the second or third week. So it would be great if it, if it did come to a second wave we were able to have more confidence about what we did and didn't need to wear because of the challenges of that. Could I just go back to a patient maybe presenting to ED? What would be some of the initial tests you would do? So you said there was a, a rapid diagnostic test for COVID. And what else would you do would be your kind of routine things? So patients coming in will have a standard blood test to see what their full blood count looks like because that tells us whether they've got features like a low lymphocyte count, which is one of the factors we see in many infections, but seems to be the case in the majority of people with COVID. We do a chest X-ray because as the disease progresses, we expect to see infiltrates in the lungs. Apart from that, most of our tests are just the standard care of looking after that patient. There are some tests that you may have seen us using more of, things like blood tests like the ferritin, things mm -hmm. like that, because that's sometimes a marker that there's a lot of inflammation going on and that can help us work out whether that patient might be somebody who's going to be very unwell. And other tests that we use a lot are the D-dimer test, which is a breakdown product um, in the coagulation cascade, which we generally use to tell whether someone's having blood clots. And blood clots are a feature of COVID but also seems to be a marker of lots of inflammation going on, and that can be helpful for us. That may be helpful, we're not quite sure, working out whether that can tell us whether someone's going to get very sick. It may or may give us may not give us some guidance about whether they need further scans, etc. Sometimes the x-ray is not enough to help us tell one way or the other, and we end up using CT scans because there's a very characteristic pattern of COVID on the CT scan, and it can also be used to help to tell us whether they're large blood clots on the lungs, so CTPAs and things can be part of that. And similarly, Dopplers of the legs and things like that can be useful, but it's basically standard medicine for somebody sick and in hospital having the standard test that they need to look after them according to what's wrong with them. We're not, at the moment, relying a huge amount on all sorts of complex measures of this cytokine and that cytokine, although in time we may find that those things are quite useful. Is there anything different about the saturations? So the main reason why people are getting unsick is it is, although I've described all this wide inflammatory process, it is predominantly in most people a problem with the lungs and therefore we use our standard strategies to work out whether people's breathing can be supported just with oxygen or whether they need something more in terms of non-invasive ventilation or in terms of intubation. So the saturations and the response to oxygen is used at the front door to help us work out whether that patient needs to be in hospital 
because they need oxygen or can go home, whether they need to be somewhere where they can access non-invasive ventilation, whether they need to be on intensive care. There are many patients who we think have got COVID or prove they've got COVID, but actually we don't think they're sick enough to be in hospital. And a group of those patients we're sending home with oxygen saturation probes so that we're able to support them at home with a phone call later on in the week to see how they're doing and have a bit of objective information to tell us whether maybe they need to come back into hospital or not, which is a a very useful Mm. way of providing some virtual healthcare and reassuring for the people that are going home to know that there's a, there's a plan. Somebody's really measuring something carefully. So we've got a COVID rapid access ID clinic, which is following up those people who are sent home from the emergency department or people soon after a brief admission to hospital to provide them that sort of support over the first couple of weeks or so after their discharge. But then we're also recognising that quite a lot of people are having quite a long-term problems with their breathing and we're working uh, closely with the respiratory physicians and others to develop a, a more systematic follow-up to see that everyone's lungs are getting better and identifying the people who is not. Is there anything that could be done to help improve that or support them if their lungs, uh, if there are long-term problems from the lungs? I think one of the most helpful things, certainly for our doctors, has been able to discuss things with the COVID team and the cross-team working, I think, has been fantastic. Yeah, so we set up our the infection team to be able to obviously have a ward to look after some of these patients, but as there was the massive surge and we needed to turn all these other mm. professionals into COVID clinicians, how to support them with questions. So we were doing safari rounds, turning up on each ward and helping with individual questions about isolation, about tests, about whether this person looked like they need antibiotics as well. And and that's working on, with all so, so many different teams on so many different levels seems to have worked pretty well and has uh, shared a lot of learning and we've learned a lot through that in the same process.